Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together Bruce and I have written 35 and counting cookbooks, including cookbooks for the Instant Pot and the Air Fryer, been nominated for some James Beard Awards. None of that is in today's. <laughs> show. Instead, we're talking bagels. We're giving you a one-minute cooking trip. Bruce has an interview all about chowder, chowder itself, and we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get going with Bagel Wars. Hey, every city wants to claim they make the best bagels in the world, right? I grew up in New York, and New York for years held that title. And I think I agree with it for a while. And supposedly it was because New York had such great <laughs> tap water. I mean, bagels are boiled before the being baked. I'm laughing already. I'm laughing. But I'm like, everything n- about New York is the best. It's well, the best. It's the best. It's the best. New York. New but, York. New York. But if you know, if you know who Nathan Meyerwold is and Francisco McGoya, they're the the modernist cook, the modernist cookbooks. They did a modernist bread, mm. and they claim when you're making a bagel, it's not about the water. It's about the bagel. Of course. It's about the baker. And we couldn't agree more because even though I thought New York had good bagels, after a while I realized the reality of it. The bagels at Essa Bagel, thick and chewy. Oh, Essa Bagel is, I'm sorry. uh, Come on, stop it. Just stop it with the doughy stuff. And, you know, the old beloved H&H, which is now forever gone Mm. over the horizon, I believe. Those bagels were dessert bagels. Donuts. sweet. They were donuts. Yeah, really, honestly. And... I know that there are all kinds of studies about, I don't know, the amount of calcium, the amount of slaking in New York City water, the amount of sewage. I have no idea. (laughs) There's all kinds of studies about why the water is so good. Bogus. Bogus. Because you can find all sorts of studies about this. If you just Google them, you'll see people then try to give that calcium component to their own tap water and nothing happens. So it's not about the water. Mirvold and Magoya are right. But it's it's also not about the city. It's like Montreal, they claim. Now, Montreal bagels are supposedly world famous. right? Mm. Oh, Montreal bagels. Now, I am a little bit of a bagel snot. Mark, so Mark and I used to go. We used to go to Nova Scotia a lot. We You're loved, making me very nervous. We loved staying at we this little place. We love our Canadian friends. I love my Canadian. We all friends. live up in Canada. You live in Canada, and you're Canadian, and I love you. But your Montreal bagels are just not the best bagels. <laughs> Man, those are fighting They're words. not. We stayed at an inn in Nova Scotia once, and the innkeepers became very close to them, Rose and Alan, and they were really nice. And one morning, Rose said to us when we came down for breakfast, we're so lucky because we have other guests who just came in from Montreal and they brought us bagels. And I'm like, ugh. I mean, I think they were good for toasting, but that's about <laughs> it. Okay, Montreal bagels are a thing. There are even Montreal bagel shops in New York City, which puts a lie to the whole thing about the water. Come on. So it's a thing. To me, Montreal bagels are a little bit... Don't at me. They're a little tough. Yeah, they are. They're not They're not as crunchy on the outside and tender on the inside that a bagel should be. Now, the Times did a piece recently on how great California bagels are, that you can get them in Culver City and Berkeley and L.A. And what killed me is that the writer loved these bagels and described them as perfect Montreal-style bagels. There you go. So mm, you lost me right there. Mark, where are the best bagels? Well, come on. We're going to tell you where gonna, they are. I, I don't know this, but uh, here's the 
story. When Bruce and I lived in Manhattan, we didn't have a car for several years, and we bought an, a car. We we decided we were actually on uh, CN8, the Comcast default channel, and it aired out of Wilmington, Delaware, and oh, once a month, we would pack our car up at 3 in the morning and drive to Wilmington, Delaware, and shoot four episodes for the month on CNA. Okay, so we needed a car. We Renting a car proved too expensive. We bought said car. The first thing that we did is we did not drive to Wilmington. We did not do anything. We drove across the bridge and went to Fairlawn, New Jersey to Hot Bagels on Morlot Avenue because Hot Bagels on Morlot Avenue in New Jersey has the best bagels ever, period. They're amazing. They are the best bagels ever. They have a huge following on Facebook. Go to Facebook and look they up do. Hot Bagels Fairlawn. It's like, this place is the best bagels it's, anywhere. It, they have the right, to me, the right... Uh, ratio of the crunchy exterior and the soft interior. Mm -hmm. They are absolutely fabulous before they're toasted. If you have to toast a bagel, it ain't right. Mm -hmm. they, it, they are soft and luscious inside, yet with a great chew and crust on the outside. Hot Bagels in Fairlawn, New Jersey on Morlot Avenue is the place that you should go. So you all know we live in rural New England, and I can promise you there are no decent bagels within a two-hour drive of oh, our house. Oh, God, don't add us again. <laughs> don't add us. Um, well, last time I said that about tortillas. Someone yeah. did add us, and she actually makes tortillas and sells them to stores near us, and I found them. So thank you and for that. And we learned that they are actually fabulous There are some fabulous tortillas. So maybe someone is making bagels I don't know about, and if you are, tell me about it. But in the meantime, I want to walk you through some tips for making great bagels at home because well, I, that is really the only way to get good bagels in rural New England. Okay, so what's the first Start thing? with bread flour. Forget the all-purpose flour. Use whatever your recipe says for bagels. Make sure you're using bread flour. It's all about the protein content and the more, the better in a bagel. And you should know that if you're going to make bagels at home, you cannot overneed the nope. dough. You can't. You need. You can overneed all kinds of breads, not with bagels. That's part of why that has that chewy, soft center, mm -hmm. crunchy outside. It's because the gluten has been fully developed. You can not overneed them. If you think you've overneeded your dough, you haven't gone far enough yet. And when you're shaping your bagel. Don't just take a ball of dough and stick your finger through the middle to make a hole and stretch it out. That's the cheating way. The best bagels, and at Hot Bagels in Fairlawn, New Jersey, they roll out into a log, and they fold it over, and they seam the ends together, and you just run your fingers over that seam. And so one side of the bagel is going to be a little bit smaller than the other where you've rolled that seam. That, to me, is the sign of a perfectly shaped bagel. Okay. And you also have to use barley malt syrup. We should say that barley malt syrup is key to making a good bagel. Not in the bagel. No, no, boiling because you boil. In the water, the bagels boil. Bagels are boiled before they're baked. And when they boil, they they puff up and they cook a bit. And they'll deflate when you take them out, but they'll repuff when you put them in the oven. And why do you do it? Well, the malt syrup caramelizes on the outside with the temperature in the oven. It caramelizes quickly. Other sweeteners, if you were to use honey or molasses, you have to bake it longer to get the good color and you get a hard, overbaked bagel. Yeah, then it, it starts to dry out inside and you lose that soft, 
chewy texture inside. The water should look like dark tea with barley mm-hmm. malt syrup. You shouldn't, don't go crazy, don't dump a whole bottle in. Nope. But you need to use a fairly big amount of barley malt syrup so that that water turns that dark tea color. And now you're ready to boil those bagels. That's how you can do it at home. Otherwise, I'm sure that this is a super controversial episode. We have tried <laughs> to start a bagel war. I'm sure that all our Canadian friends now hate us. I'm sure that all our New York City friends now hate us. I'm sure that all our California friends now hate us. I'm sure we'll never appear in the New York Times again. But there you go. Just get thyself to Fairlawn, to Morlot Avenue in New Jersey, and you can have the best bagels in the world because they are shaped by hand. They are boiled in a lot of barley malt syrup, and they are, in fact, almost over-kneaded so that they have the exact right crunchy exterior, chewy interior. Okay, before we get to our patented one-minute cooking tip... Let us say that you should subscribe to this podcast. You should, and you won't miss a single episode. And wherever you subscribe, if it lets you leave a comment, leave a star, drop us a rating, it all really, really helps. So thank you for doing that because those those five stars and those those comments really help. They <laughs> too. Even there's even some one star ratings on our thing. I'm I'm just pretending that people didn't know which end of the stars to press, and so they gave us <laughs> one stars. How can you hate me? Even though I told you your bagels are all crap. Our one-minute cooking tip, and that is all about honey. Honey lasts almost forever, but it does crystallize. Oh, does it ever. So it's not pourable, and it just gets all hard. So the easy, easy way to fix it. Put the jar of honey sealed tight into a large bowl or a pot and pour boiling water over it. Then let it sit. The boiling water will, will soften and melt and repeat. Once it's cool... Then take a look at your jar. It may be totally liquefied and maybe partially. If it's only partially, repeat. So just you're basically you're soaking that in boiling water until it uncrystallizes. Right. And honey crystallizes for a variety of reasons. But this is a call to then buy smaller jars of honey. Mm-hmm. Big jars of honey are always a problem because you're never going to catch it in time for the crystallizing unless you're making vats and vats of honey cake it only stands to reason by honey and smaller honey jars. cake i mean maybe we have to have the honey cake wars because you know that there's there's oh, a whole thing about what kind of honey cake me. well let's not talk about that let's talk about chowder up next bruce's <laughs> interview with craig fear the author of new england soups from the sea and all there is to know about making fabulous new england style soups Today, I'm talking to Craig Fear, author of many cookbooks, including his latest cookbook, New England Soups from the Sea, Recipes for Chowders, Bisques, Boils, Stews, and Classic Seafood Medleys. Hey, Craig, welcome. Hey, Bruce. Thanks for having me. So your book is so packed with history and recipes, as well as information on all kinds of fish and shellfish. But before we get into some recipe specifics, I want to talk a bit about tips for buying seafood and what to look for. And you encourage readers to buy U.S. farm shellfish. Why is that? When it comes to um, aquaculture, uh, there's, there's really like two, two types of aquacultures. There's, there's the shellfish aquaculture and your fish aquaculture. Um, and they're very controversial. At least fish aquaculture is very controversial. There's a lot of um, pros. There's a lot of cons. But when we talk about the benefits of aquaculture, like all the benefits are with really shellfish. You cannot go wrong with um, 
when you're buying shellfish um, from aquaculture. And the reason is, is because it doesn't require any feed. So they just, you know, they're feeding on the natural nutrients in the water. Fish farms require feed. Um, so we're using a lot of kind of wild caught fish to fish to feed the farms, which is not the most efficient way, you know, to, for, for, um, for our seafood. And so they're just growing naturally and they're, they're natural filter feeders. So they clean the, um, the water. So they're great for water quality. So when we're purchasing uh, US um, bought uh, shellfish, it's a win-win for everybody. They're sustainable. You're, you're generally speaking, you're also supporting small businesses. Uh, a lot of these farms are very small farms that line our, our coasts. Um, and they're just, they're, you know, they're fantastic uh, quality as well. And when it comes to non-shellfish, regular fish, you encourage people to buy fish directly from producers, even if that's online. And why is that a better option than buying fish in your local supermarket? There is so much confusion out there about, you know, sustainability around seafood. And, um, you know, there's just so many labels and supermarkets. Um, and so I try to simplify it for people in the book. And I try to make the case for U.S. caught seafood. Like if it's coming from the United States, so our fisheries in this country are like, they're a model, they're a model of um, sustainability around the world. They are fantastic. So when you're, you're buying, going to the supermarket or any store, look for anything from the U.S. Now, the closer we can get to the source, <clears throat> the better. So if you can buy direct from a fisherman, that kind of takes out the middleman, gets him a fair price. Um, of course, that's not possible for everybody because you want to live along the coast, but you can certainly like, there are more options now with like direct online buying options. So there are CSFs, uh, which is like the equivalent of CSA. A great resource to find them would be localcatch.org. Uh, and CFS stands for Community Supported Fishery, where you can directly support fishermen uh, who will ship directly to you. Usually like, you know, they're concentrated around the coast, but there are some companies now that are also kind of shipping all over the United States. One that I mentioned in the book, is called Red's Best. They're fantastic. And they they kind of support small scale sustainable fishermen in New England, and they will kind of um, uh, package and uh, ship uh, uh, seafood to you. But there's many others online too. And it's a much better way to kind of um, support US fishermen and keep our source of seafood in the United States instead of, uh, you know, going to the supermarket and, you know, getting looking for the cheapest price, but so much of this stuff is coming from overseas without the uh, sustainability, the, the strict guidelines for um, um, managing our fish, managing quotas, managing stocks that we have in the United States. In the beginning of the book, you did a lot of research about history of how we eat fish, especially in this country, in New England. And there was a huge change, wasn't there, from the beginning of the 20th century to now. Can you talk a bit about the change in our attitude towards fish? Yeah, it became really... Um simplified, I think. Maybe I can speak of my experience, which I think kind of parallels many Americans' experience, which is that growing up, I didn't eat much fish or shellfish. You know, I grew up on the North Shore of Long Island, a mile from the water, but there was no local like fisheries. We didn't, we didn't go fishing much. My family was not a fishing family. We just went to the, you know, the supermarket, we got our fish. And I don't remember ever eating anything other than whitefish and not particularly loving it as a kid. And I think that kind of parallels a lot of people's experience. And then what happened is there were kind of some economic forces after World War II. You know, before World War II, fa um, families and communities were more um, smaller, close-knit, and fishing families along the coast, you would, there, would be, there was a, a much more acceptance of a greater diversity of seafood. What fishermen caught, you would eat. And there was a, more of a knowledge for how to kind of cook and prepare 
uh, local seafood. We kind of lost that after World War II with um, the rise of kind of big food, industrial food, the rise of you know, our supermarkets getting bigger and bigger. And we started really, um, obviously, the technology to catch fish increased, and we started targeting just a smaller and smaller amount of fish. So most people today, they're only comfortable with a small, narrow range of seafood, that being farm salmon, shrimp, and a few species of whitefish. And anything beyond that is a little bit like, well, you know, there's some fears around it. Like, I don't know how to cook it. I don't know what it is. You know, it's fishy. It's like, how do I prepare it? And so that's not good for like sustainability because we're kind of overfishing the oceans, just trying to fulfill this global demand for just a few small species. We really need to kind of um, broaden our interest, you know, a greater diversity of um, seafood the way we once used to. So that our fishermen, and especially in the United States, can like give it to us because they're, they are catching this great diversity of fish. But the irony is they're shipping it overseas, <laughs> the places that uh, have more of a demand for it than we do in America. So in my book, I try to like reintroduce some of these local species again um, and kind of present them in a different number of different recipes so we can get, um, you know, kind of re-familiarize re ourselves to what is local seafood in America beyond, you know, the, the, the kind of the big four shrimp, salmon, cod, um, tuna. Craig, you claim the golden age of chowder is the early 20th century. What made chowder <laughs> so popular back then and how's it changed since? Well, that, that kind of came from just like um, doing a lot of research on, on uh, you know, old cookbooks and just looking at old cookbooks like pre-World War II. And there were just these an incredible diversity of chowder recipes. You know, today it's clam chowder. You go to, the, you go to your restaurant, clam chowder, lobster bisque. <laughs> That's pretty much it. In 95% of all restaurants when it comes to like seafood or seafood soup, clam chowder, lobster bisque. Um, but when I went back and looked at these old cookbooks, uh, it was just so different. There was, you know, fish chowders using every type of fish imaginable and every type of shellfish imaginable and so many different kind of um, cookbooks. And one that I highlight in my book a little bit is called this, this old cookbook called uh, The Soup Book. And there were 100 different chowder recipes. And only, there were only a few with clam. I think maybe, I forget how many, maybe around 10 or so with clam, different types of clam chowders. And actually historically, uh, chowders started out as fish. They were all fish chowders when they first started um, becoming popular in New England. And then the kind of um, the clams came in in like the late, I think, 19th century. And for a while, it was like clams and fish were just as kind of equally common. But then after World War II, um, second half of the 20th century, clams kind of became the king, the king of chowders. There's this uh, other really good book called 50 Chowders by uh, Jasper White. He's a, new, a famous New England chef. And he, and he calls the uh, what happened with chowder, he calls it the Howard Johnsonization effect. After World War II, we started traveling more in our own country and um, uh, establishments like um, fast food and, and Howard Johnson's brought kind of chowder to the masses, but they kind of homogenized it. And they had, their version was very much a thick and creamy kind of overly pasty. It wasn't really the traditional chowders of New England, but nevertheless, I always say like even bad chowder is good chowder. <laughs> and so people loved it. Uh, and then kind of chowder spread all around the country. Um, you know, it's become New England's probably most iconic dish, clam chowder, and kind of that's the number one protein now 
but I think there's, you know, if we look historically, you can make chowder out of anything, any shellfish, any fish. So there's more to it than just clam chowder. Speaking of clam chowder, though, we all think of this creamy, gloppy, rich thing. But you have a recipe for Rhode Island chowder that has clear broth. You have a Connecticut chowder with tomatoes. What's your personal preference when you sit down to a bowl of chowder? Cream or no cream? I mean, honestly, if to me, the key to a clam chowder is if you make it from real quahog clams, you make it from real hard shell New England clams and you make the uh, clam broth yourself, which is so easy. It's just steaming the clams in water and you, and you get this really salty, briny, strongly flavored broth that you then kind of use as the base in the chowder. And then you get these amazing, delicious, real local clams, not canned clams. I honestly say it for me, it doesn't matter. I love them all. So you brought up good clam broth. Let's talk about that for a second. We all know that good chicken stock, bone broth are the foundations to cooking meat dishes, but people don't necessarily think about making their own fish stock or fish broths. How important is that to really cooking good chowders and bisques? I think I say somewhere in the introduction to my, my book, like you can make, you can make good soups and good chowders and good seafood soups with like store-bought, you know, stocks and broths, but you can't make like epic, real soul-stirring ones. And to me, that's the key to really like taking these, these, these recipes that I, in my book and, or any seafood soup and like just kind of making it, taking it to that next level is to make your own stock or broth. And it just creates that essence of the sea background flavor that you just can't get in a, in a kind of a packaged broth. When you package like seafood stocks, it does turn it a little flat and fishy tasting, which is like the antithesis of your own making it at home. You want that kind of fresh flavors and aromas. I mean, I think that's what gives seafood kind of a bad reputation is all these packaged like seafood products we've been eating for 50 years, canned tuna and fish sticks. You know, that turns flat and fishy tasting and it takes away that fresh, beautiful flavor of the sea. And, and um, so when you make your own stocks, it just kind of elevates things to um, just another level. And it really kind of brings out that essential ocean fresh flavor in, in, in your soups. I think a lot of people just are afraid of making fish stock. Um, any tips for how to just explain how easy it is and why people shouldn't be afraid of making their own? Oh, it's so easy. So... You know, when we make chicken or beef broth stocks, um, they're easy too, but you, you know, you do have to simmer them for, you know, a while, three, at least three, four hours to get their, to get their flavor, right. To get the flavor out of them. But with fish, you never want to simmer it for more than an hour. So at the most you're spending is an hour. Uh, so they're, they're actually the quickest stocks to make. And the reason is you don't want to overcook those delicate polyunsaturated fats that, you know, if you do overcook them, they'll they can, they can make it too fishy. Actually, the funny thing, funny, funny story. When I first started making fish stocks many years ago, I was following advice in this cookbook. I had to simmer fish stocks for 20, 24 hours. <laughs> I don't think this person knew, like, I think she just took like chicken and beef and said, Oh, made the assumption, the same thing with fish. And Oh man, do not simmer fish stock for 24 hours. And just like chicken and beef, where you use mostly the bones, are you using the mostly the bones with fish? Or can you throw a whole fish in the pot? No, you definitely want to like use just the carcass, like the parts that you wouldn't eat. Um, so, you, you know, once you fillet it, then what's ever left over, uh, the, um, you throw it, just throw the rest in. Um, the heads are great. Uh, they're, they're really wonderful. Actually, there's a lot of the flavor 
uh, will come from uh, a whole fish head. I know that makes people a little squeamish, like, oh my God, a whole, a whole fish head. Um, but you don't have to eat the whole fish head like they do in a lot of cultures around the world. <laughs> um, and it's a great way to like, you know, start to reintroduce whole fish to us in America because we, we don't use whole fish anymore. Many cultures around the world do. And when we just get these fillets, you know, we're wasting these really valuable parts of the fish that have a lot of nutrients in them. And so when we simmer fish, you know, in these stocks, it's the similar principle with chicken and beef and that there's a lot of wonderful nutrients that we can get out of the fish uh, that are really nourishing and healthy for us. So uh, that's a good kind of reintroduction for if, if you're like a little squeamish with whole fish, we'll make a fish stock. You don't have to eat like the fish head and you, you get a really wonderful uh, flavorful stock. And another great thing about them is that they're the cheapest stocks you can make. Like kind of like the, with the, the, the new kind of demand for like chicken bones, beef bones, because I think there's been a, a resurgence of interest in making homemade stocks. The, the prices have gone up a bit for these things. Whereas fish, there's still so little demand. You can just go into your fishmonger and say, hey, you got any, uh, you know, whole fish carcasses? And they might not have it that day, but they'd be like, yeah, you know, you just let me, I'll, you know, put it, you know, I'll save some the next time I get some, some whole fish that we're doing the filleting, come back on Tuesday or Thursday, and, you know, they'll give them to you at a really cheap price. Hey, what's the difference between a bisque and a chowder? Well, a bisque is, it, typically a bisque is a, um, comes from um, crustaceans, like the most popular one is, or shellfish, the most popular, of course, is lobster. And it's um, kind of cooked twice. So you kind of make it from the stock and then you kind of add the meat and you puree it. So it's a smooth, creamy uh, preparation. Whereas chowder is more, it's more like stew-like in a way. Um, chunkier, you don't puree it, of course. The typical ingredients are potatoes, onions, uh, bacon or salt pork and like chunks of um, fish or shellfish. You've got a couple of tips in the book that I love about just simply cooking some shellfish. For instance... Lobster and crabs. You say, and I've never seen anyone say this before, plunge them into ice water directly after steaming them. Why do you do that? It keeps the meat from cook continuing to cook. And that'll keep the, the meat from overcooking, which is kind of can sometimes be a problem when you when you cook um, shellfish. But, but all that heat in the shells just stays trapped in there and will turn that meat a little too tough. So that'll kind of keep them from, um, yeah, keep them from overcooking. Because you want to you're going to want to like, you know, remove the meat and then use that back. So when you, when you do that, especially for a soup, what you're doing is like, for example, lobster, you're not just cooking the lobster and eating it right whole right there. You kind of, you want to reserve the meat and then you're going to put it back in like a lobster corn chowder or a lobster bisque. And then you kind of risk like cooking it again and then kind of overcooking it, the meat. So you want to kind of cool it right away and keep that meat nice and nice, nice and tender. Craig, you seem to know more about fish and chowders and bisques than anyone I've spoken to in a long time. All the information, all the great recipes, tips are in your new book, New England Soups from the Sea, recipes for chowders, bisques, boils, stews, and classic seafood medleys. Great good luck with the book. And thanks for joining us today. It was great being here. Thanks so much for having me, Bruce. Okay, Bruce, that was a great interview. I love chowder more than I can say. I love all kinds of chowders and I do, do love seafood soup. Mm. I can't help myself. It, I, oh man, a good clam soup is just one of those Yum. things that is just a fine thing in life. It's not good for the gout, but it's good. No, it's not good for <laughs> gout. All that shellfish stuff isn't so great for gout, but uh, you know, I don't have any gout. So there you go.
Up next, our final segment, as always, what's making us happy in food this week? And I'm going to start. And what's making me happy in food this week are vegan chocolate chip cookies. And I know that you're going to laugh at vegan chocolate chip cookies because I'm not a vegan. Mm. However, years ago, here was the problem. Bruce and I would go on car trips. We would stop to get snacks, of course, as you do on car trips. You stop to get snacks. We would stop at Whole Foods. I would run inside. I would buy vegan cookies, you know, vegan chocolate chip cookies and some snacks. And inevitably, those vegan chocolate chip cookies were disgusting because they were limp and soft and grainy and gross. And I said to Bruce, is there no way to make a crunchy vegan cookie. Well, Bruce came up with a way. He makes these fabulous tahini, maple, oat, vegan, totally vegan, no eggs. They're not. They they have gluten. They're made with flour. Mm -hmm. But they are vegan chocolate chip cookies. And you can find out how to do that by going to our YouTube channel, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and watching the video of them being made right there. Oh, my God. I love those. So what's making me happy in food this week is gallberry honey. And gallberry. why I I'm like not, it. Let me just say that you're not saying it right because it's a southern thing. It's gallberry honey. Gallberry honey? Yeah, gallberry honey. It is one of the few varietals of honey that is resistant to crystallizing. And since we talked about our one-minute cooking tip about getting rid of crystallized honey, if you Super. buy gallberry honey... It won't crystallize super, on you to begin with. Super aromatic. And delicious and deeply flavored. And if you could find it even with some honeycomb in it, oh, it's the best. So Mark yeah. is liking the cookies and I'm liking the honey. That gallberry honey with honeycomb in it is a fine thing. You smear that honeycomb. Mm. But let me tell you how to do it as a southerner. You get yourself a piece of toast. You put a goodly, as my grandmother would say, a goodly <laughs> amount of butter on it. And then after that, you pick up that comb. You kind of scrape up some of that comb with the honey. And you just smear it all over your bread. And then you, as we say in the South, have yourself a big time. It is a fabulous thing, gallberry honey, G-A-L-L berry honey. Look it up. And uh, it's 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 a unique and delicious honey product. Okay, that's our uh, podcast episode today. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this show. The we, Bagel Wars, our one-minute cooking I tip. Know, we really, really... Chowded discussion really with Craig everyone. Fear. So for our one listener left, having offended everyone, uh, we hope you, sir, enjoyed this show. Or ma'am. You, sir, or ma'am. We'll come back next time. And join us for another episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And you will subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And you'll go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and join in the conversation. If you've got a lot of parties coming up, hey, catch our book, Sheet Cakes and Slab Pies, a giant celebration of everything made in a 13 by 18 inch pan. You haven't lived until you've made a cranberry cake for crowds. See you next time.